Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Grammar Girl here, I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. Writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a meaty middle about idioms that use the word blue. A quick and dirty tip about the difference between the words oral and verbal, and a listener familect story. Let's get started. I've talked on previous podcasts about idioms that use the word blue. We talked about blue bloods, the blue moon, and blue laws, just to name a few. Today, I'm going to share a few more. First up is blue collar. This term originated in the United States. It's been used since the 1920s to refer to people who perform manual labor, that is, who work with their hands. Side note, the word manual derives from the classical Latin manus, meaning hand. The catch-all term blue-collar includes everyone from farmers and electricians to people who work in construction and manufacturing. But why blue? That refers to the practice of workers wearing blue overalls or coveralls to work. These were usually made of heavy fabric like denim or canvas. You know how you can wipe your hands on your jeans and your jeans still don't look dirty? Coveralls were often made of blue denim for the same reason. It does a good job of hiding grease, grime, and grunge. Blue-collar jobs are distinguished from white-collar jobs, those that are performed in an office. The origin of the term white-collar is pretty straightforward. Just picture a traditional male office worker wearing a suit, tie, and a stiff white dress shirt. This term appeared slightly before the term blue-collar. It first appeared in a 1910 Indiana newspaper that described someone from the country following, quote, the lure of the white-collar to the city so he can wear a white collar all the week, unquote. I wonder what that chap would think if he showed up in 2019 and saw some of the casual Friday outfits that city folk now wear to work. I'm not sure if he'd be pleased or disappointed. One other note on collars. There's a third term, pink collar, that refers to professions traditionally associated with women. Think teacher, hairdresser, secretary, or nurse. This term was introduced in a landmark 1977 book called Women's Work that explored the increasing presence of women in the workplace. The author observed that women were generally earning less money and less respect than men who held similar jobs, and that their careers often suffered when they left the workplace to raise children and returned after several years, older and without current job experience. 
This may not seem like hot news today, but at the time, these were radical observations. Speaking of women and their role in the world, let's talk about the term blue-stocking, an insulting name for a scholarly or intellectual woman. This term can be traced all the way back to the 1400s, when a society of intellectual men and women was formed in Venice. Members were distinguished by the color of their stockings and referred to as de la calza, meaning of the stocking. Similar societies popped up in Paris in the 1500s and London in the mid-1700s. The London societies were led by a group of wealthy, well-connected women who hosted literary soirees in their homes. One of the most prominent hostesses, Elizabeth Montagu, was described as, quote, brilliant in diamonds, solid in judgment, and critical in talk, unquote. Guests at her salons included the philosopher Edmund Burke, novelist Henry Fielding, and Samuel Johnson, author of a groundbreaking early dictionary of the English language. As to how Montague and other hostesses came to be known as blue stockings, it wasn't because of the color of their hose. In the Victorian era, it would have been considered scandalous for a woman to show even a hint of stocking. Women's dresses reached all the way to the floor. Instead, it was a man's stockings that inspired the name. Remember that men of that era wore breeches, pants that stopped just below the knee, with stockings beneath them. Gentlemen and tradesmen generally wore white silk stockings. Laborers, by contrast, wore more gray or blue stockings made of more durable, worsted wool. A frequent guest at Elizabeth Montague's salon was an eccentric botanist named Benjamin Stillingfleet. Flouting convention, he wore blue wool hose rather than white silk ones. This was so noteworthy and Stillingfleet's presence so ubiquitous that the salons he attended came to be known as blue stocking clubs and its members blue stockings. It's noteworthy that although this term started out as complimentary, evoking women as cultural leaders at the pinnacle of literary society, it quickly became derogatory. An 1891 Guide to Etiquette puts blue stockings in the same what-not-to-do category as coquettes and prudes. The author notes that a blue stocking, quote, speaks in measured phrase. It's like listening to a book to hear her. She's wrapped up in Tennyson, Browning, and Holmes. There is a great aim at display with a self-righteousness that is very unpleasing, unquote. In other words, being a blue stocking no longer means you're a cultural leader. It means you're a know-it-all with your head buried in books. Let's finish up with another blue term that refers to women in not such a great way, blue hair. That's a derogatory way of referring to an elderly woman. This term alludes to white or gray hair that's been treated with a blue rinse, a type of mild hair dye that was popular from the 1930s through the 1970s. When applied correctly, it gave yellowing hair a silvery tint. When applied with a heavy hand, it gave hair a distinctly bluish cast. This term was first used in the U.S. in the 1940s. A parallel term popped up in the U.K. in the 1950s, the Blue Rinse Brigade. 
This term specifically referred to elderly women whose out-of-date hairstyles were thought to reflect out-of-touch conservative values. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com grammar today. Next, on to a rule that I confess I had never heard before I became Grammar Girl. Many style guides, including the Chicago Manual of Style, the New York Times Manual of Style and Usage, and the Economist Style Guide, all say you shouldn't use the word verbal to mean something that's spoken. Instead, you should use the word oral because technically, something that's verbal can be written or spoken. According to Adam Online, verbal comes from the Latin word verbuma, which simply means word. The late Latin form was verbalis, meaning consisting of words and relating to verbs. So you won't be surprised to hear that the word verb also comes from the same root as verbal. So if something verbal just relates to words, it can be written or spoken, and that's still one of the current definitions. Oral, on the other hand, refers only to things that are spoken. It comes from the late Latin word oralis, which essentially means mouth. Garner's Modern English Usage says that it's common for people to use verbal to mean oral. 
He puts it at stage four on his language change index, which means it's ubiquitous, but not universally accepted. It's the etiquette equivalent of putting your elbows on the table. It's incredibly easy to find examples of well-known writers using verbal to mean spoken. Here's an especially clear example from the Nobel laureate Doris Lessing that I found in her novel, The Golden Notebook. Quote, The real history of Africa is still in the custody of black storytellers and wise men, black historians, medicine men. It is a verbal history, still kept safe from the white man and his predations. Everywhere, if you keep your mind open, you will find the words not written down. Unquote. Sometimes it's not clear whether writers mean written or spoken when they use the word verbal, but in that case, there is no mistaking that she's using verbal to mean spoken, not written. So, what should you do? If you're a writer who has to follow a specific style guide that says you shouldn't use verbal to mean spoken, or if you're a lawyer and need to use especially precise language, you should stick with oral to describe spoken words. If you aren't a professional writer, I don't think you should worry about it too much. But if you do decide to use the word verbal to mean written, which is an uncommon but correct use, you should make sure the context makes your meaning clear. Unless you're writing a mystery novel in which the protagonist is a language pedant who uses verbal to mean written and the misunderstanding is the whole basis for the confusion that ensues. Sometimes my imagination gets the best of me. <laughs> Finally, I have a family-like story. It's a little hard to hear, especially in the beginning, so know that she's saying Helen's, like the women's name Helen. Hi, Grandma Girl. I'm calling in from California with a family story. We have raised chickens for many years for eggs, and our family calls chickens Helen's. Based off of an old comedy show, I think it was from Canada, called Kids in the Hall. It ran in the late 80s, early 90s. On the show, there was a sketch called 30 Helens Agree. And that skit featured a group of women, all named Helen, of course, who agreed or sometimes disagreed on a topic. The way they interacted with each other on the topic on the show reminds us of how our flocks of chickens sometimes interact with each other. So for many, many years, our family has called chickens Helen. Thank you. Thank you. And remember, if you want to hear your family story on the show, the story of a word your family and only your family uses, your family dialect, leave a voicemail message at 83-321-4-GIRL. And be sure to tell me the story because that's always the best part. I'm Mignon Fogarty, Grammar Girl and author of the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. And thanks to my audio producer, Nathan Sems. This show is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, so check out some of our other shows like Nutrition Diva, Get It Done Guy, Get Fit Guy, and more. That's all. Thanks for listening. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. At Capella University. 
you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.